Please listen carefully. 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 Hello, and welcome to the Utterly Moderate Podcast, where two reasonable social scientists discuss big, important topics by presenting just the facts and none of the unneeded opinions and biases. I'm Allison Dagnus, and I'm a political scientist. And I'm Lauren Seppert. I'm a sociologist. How are you doing today, Allie? I am great. Lawrence, thanks for asking. It's beautiful outside. It and is. Indeed. It's September. I feel like we should cue the earth, wind, and fire music just to <laughs> celebrate along. Um, how is the start? How is the start of your fall? It is post Labor Day. Good. I mean, this weather feels really great. Fall is my favorite season. So I do love I'm fall. digging it. I got my red. You can see my earthy tones on that I'm wearing right now. I'm wearing earthy tones, too. It's very exciting. <laughs> we match, actually. Yeah. We do. We color coordinate. We could be backup dancers for Earth, Wind, and Fire. That's right. And uh, this is all great material for a show that has no video. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> Everyone, close your eyes unless you're driving. And imagine, we look like pumpkin spice right now. Don't fall off the treadmill. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, it's going well. I had a funny uh, interaction I wanted to tell you about in the classroom yesterday. So I do this. Um, I teach a social inequality class. And it's really mm-hmm. data heavy. And we're, we're really going through a lot of the mobility data. And so every once in a while, it's nice to break it up with an activity. And so... When I'm showing them like, all right, when people start out in a particular social class, where do they end up as adults? I often will take a break from the data and we'll do this activity where they have to try to make a basket with paper from okay. different areas of the room. And it just displays like how hard it is, even with the same effort okay. to succeed from one place versus another. So anyway, so there's a lot of paper all over the floor. So the class is over. I'm like, all right, guys, you know, don't worry about helping me pick up. You guys just go, go have a great day. I'll pick this up, you know, see you guys later. Well, of course... Shippensburg is a very nice school. It and is. so we have a very nice student who comes over and says, let me, let me help you out there. I know you said not to help you. Let me help you. And I'm thinking oh, to myself for like so one nice. point. Yeah. For like 1.5 seconds, I was like, oh my yeah. gosh, what a nice student. And then he says this as he's bending down almost into my ear. He says, <laughs> cause I know you probably have bad knees. Oh no! <laughs> and a part of me wanted to be annoyed that he stereotyped me, but then I thought to myself, you know what? He's right. I do have bad knees. Yeah. <laughs> it's when they when they get us, they get us. Oh he got me. no! <laughs> but you know, anyway. But speaking of how is the semester going? Uh, I believe you went to a university cookout in a thunderstorm yesterday. Um, I went to two. Uh, oh, even better. <laughs> yeah. No, it's been it's so great because you know all of our like. Let's start the semester cookout things uh, were scheduled. And then we've been just having this like insane weather where you yeah. look at the weather and it's like, it's never going to rain again. And you're like, that's fantastic because I've got a barbecue. And then suddenly it rains. <laughs> the, yeah. You know, the barbecue has been canceled. Wah, wah. Um, and yesterday was the day that there were two barbecues that had been, I think, rescheduled. And so I was like, all right. Well, let's just get this done. And it wasn't supposed to rain. We show up to the first barbecue, which really was less of a barbecue and more of a we're bringing in subs <laughs> for our <laughs> for our majors and minors. And um, and we have just this fantastic student. And I mean that in every sense of the word. He is just a great student in that he's brilliant and also does every word of the reading and every bit of work and is just an amazing student. And he also is the nicest kid in the world. And his family owns an Asian fusion restaurant and he makes great sushi. 
so he's kind of the like he's the entire package of everything. Total package. Yeah. I mean, oh my gosh, he's a delight. So he brought two trays of sushi. And so there were subs and we fed our, you know, our undergrad students, our majors and our minors. Um, and uh, Vincent brought the sushi. And so everybody was just having a really good time. And I, I created this game where everyone had to figure out which faculty member was attached to a certain fun fact. And then they had to run around and ask each faculty member, are, are you the one who worked <laughs> at a florist? And if it wasn't them, they had to go to another faculty member and find the one who worked at the florist. And the first person who filled out the entire faculty fun fact sheet, you know, won the first prize. And so it was just such a nice afternoon. And uh, it was great. And we're under this pavilion. And so there are about 40 kids. It was great. It was just a good turnout. Everyone was in a good mood. I was, I had like a nice little baby belly full of sushi. <laughs> and, um, and so it was just good times. And in fact, the, the ROTC crew was out doing their thing and, and they had to disband early because it, it started to thunder and lightning. And so the ROTC commander, who I've never met, he came in and said, you know, what's going on over here? I was like, it's ship poli sci. And we started talking and uh, he kind of looked around and then he looked back at me and he goes, huh, that's pretty good. And I was like, yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. You guys are really sci. good. We really as somebody, are. As somebody who's not in your department, I'll give you the objective outsider's well, view. Thank you. You guys are really good at bringing your folks together camaraderie creating events like staying connected you're a pretty Thanks. impressive department well thank you and you in particular that's a pretty cool game you you devised there well thank you uh it took it took them a while to figure out that i was the one on the varsity bowling team in my high school and and <laughs> that then was your fun fact that was my fun fact um because they know how unathletic i am <laughs> and so <laughs> and so finally a couple girls came over and said really you were on the varsity bowling team? And I said, okay, you guys have had me for several classes. Why was I? And they thought about it and they went, oh, wait a minute. You did it for the nachos. And I was like, that's it. <laughs> Thank you. You understand. That, Bingo. Is why, that is why I did it. I did it for the nachos. Who had who had the funniest fun fact of all the faculty? Uh, that would be Dr. Bailey, former uh, you know friend of the pod, guest on the pod. Who, star of the pod. Star yeah. of the pod, who um, when he was, I think the night before his college graduation, he broke into the college pool, went skinny dipping, and then stole the flag, the college flag <laughs> from the center <laughs> of campus. And he still has the flag today. Still has the flag. He still has the flag. Where is it? He's got to bring it in. I think it's. I might even be in his office. We can. <laughs> we can awesome. find out. That's easy enough to find out. Well, our um, listeners wouldn't. Good facts. Our listeners wouldn't know this, but Allie, I happen to know it, and you'll never say it on the air because you're just too modest among your many virtues. But uh, you are one of the most popular professors on Aww. campus in a very well, popular department but you're a very popular professor well, students thank, love you I, I, well thank you very much i, I used in the before times <laughs> it's, a, it's a weird political climate then covid hit and yeah. then covid and it all went south <laughs> you can't see that big smile of mine behind a mask. um <laughs> it's just much harder <laughs> that smile um, looks almost like uh <laughs> almost like i'm crying <laughs> which which sometimes i am um so cracking okay, at so the edges it really was yeah yeah. Um, so we went from that 
to uh, it was thundering and it was lightning. And I thought, oh, no, oh, no. Uh, the next barbecue that, that faculty are supposed <laughs> and then to be turned, going to. My skin turned to felt. <laughs> it did. I mean, <laughs> and I turned into fuzzy bear, which is my, you know, my, my aspirational. To the picnic. I didn't turn into the Swedish chef. I turned into fuzzy bear and I had a little hat and I could play the piano. Um and uh, and I thought, oh no, the the president's welcome back barbecue, which had been originally scheduled for sometime in August. Our new president. Our new president. Uh, he had rescheduled it for yesterday, and so I thought, uh oh. And then it was like the clouds just ran away. They were too afraid to stick around for too long, and so I hoofed it up to up to the main administrational building, and sure enough. There was like a, a ray of sunshine, Lawrence, that was shining directly on the wine table. <laughs> <laughs> and and all I found the end of the rainbow. I did. <laughs> That's what Kermit was singing about. <laughs> that was the rainbow connection. And you want to know who shut down? You're elbowing them out of the way. Get out of the way, everybody. Listen, it's been a hard week. <laughs> Move out of the way. Dr. Dadnick needs her happy juice. That will cut you. <laughs> but with a smile. <laughs> so they think I'm kidding. Um, I made the former chair of the math department. So everybody, la- like it was a really nice barbecue and the president and his wife were there and they were charming. And uh, and then people came and ate hot dogs and it was delicious. And then everybody left. And um, and so there was a table of about uh, a dozen of us who just were there and we just hung on for, for dear life. <laughs> and and then finally, the caterers were like, uh, we can't leave you with like wine bottles, but here's a bunch of cups. <laughs> and we're like, cool. Um, and so I made the former chair of the math department do the average of the age of our table and when we found out that it was 54.2 i was like that's right a you know an average of 54 year olds shut this party down <laughs> take that undergrads you know we're like woo, woo. we're all sitting in the dark at a picnic table <laughs> like we know how to party Shh, be nice and quiet and also don't move a lot because we could break a hip it did was a show, lot of fun. <laughs> did you show up to the faculty picnic with like the beer helmet on with like uh, straws <laughs> coming out of the hard hat? <laughs> no, but we sat down and then there was a there was a raucous conversation about blood pressure medicine. And, you know, <laughs> I'm just kidding. We didn't do that. <laughs> I caught myself the other day with a friend of mine having one of those conversations and like mid conversation. I was like, what are we doing? Yeah. Like, we were talk, talking about our gout or something. <laughs> like, <laughs> comparing insurance plans. <laughs> you know, it's, it's one of those things. <laughs> you just can't help it. You just start talking. You're like, no, this is really interesting and important. Yeah. Well, because it does naturally happen as you age. Yeah. But then like midway through, I'm like, oh, so this is it, huh? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It unfortunately does happen. Um, but it was an awful lot of fun. And you know I'm glad. It was a it was a nice night. It is good to be it is good to be back. And it's good that it's fall. And so it is. it's uh that August heat has broken. You weren't lying about the weather yesterday. I I looked at my weather app and it's got the hourly breakdown. Mm-hmm. And so it was like all night it was clear except for like 6 p.m., there was a 30% chance, and it said it will probably drizzle a little bit for part of that hour, and then it'll be fine. So I thought, okay, you know, I'll mow the lawn after it breaks. And then a thunderstorm rolled in and just like devastated the place. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, I mean, me. like a loud, 
As in like, ooh, God's really mad at us, Thunderstorm. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh-oh, what is going on? Like, it got really dark. Yeah. It was weird. It was, it was very, odd. very strange. Yeah. And then it just all went away. And it was blindingly sunny. And that white whale, me and you have been chasing of getting somebody, a meteorologist on our show yes. to explain all that. We're going to get it. One of these days, we're going to get it. Yes. So when we keep asking for Noah, we're not asking for the guy with the ark. From we're PR. asking for the we're asking for the National Oceanic whatever AA stands that's, for. That sounds right. Yeah. It's, I don't know. Right. Yeah, I'll just keep going with it. Anyway, yes, the organization <laughs> that monitors the weather. We need you. Got you. It right. Yeah, please right. come, really please come on to the show. Please tell us why this is happening. And After the way you nailed on. their acronym, I think they're coming on. Well, they want to correct me, <laughs> as most right. people do. <laughs> <laughs> well, Allie, what do we have on tap today? Well, today is a very good day because two tremendously lovely and brilliant uh, and insightful political scientists are going to join us. So I always like it when the poli folks, yep, we get to outnumber you. Uh, Amy Freed <laughs> and Doug Harris have a new book out and it is called At War with Government, How Conservatives Weaponize Distrust from Goldwater to Trump. And this is a fantastic look at how in the last 50 years, there's been a concerted effort to really throw shade at governing and at the institutions of government in order to achieve kind of larger political goals. And this has come at a pretty big cost, but it also has some pretty specific benefits for the right. And so in a very, very thorough examination of this, um, Amy and Doug do a great job of explaining why this has happened and um, the costs and, and benefits of, of this kind of strategy. So um, I'm very excited. And Amy and Doug are just they're just fantastic people, um, but they also happen to be great researchers. So the book is terrific. And um, and it is for sale now at a Barnes & Noble or independent bookstore, Amazon app near you. At an internet browser near you. Yes. <laughs> uh, before we, we throw it to them, Allie, can I read you a few statistics from Gallup and Pew? Oh, I wish you would. Okay, these first numbers come from Gallup, and they were asking Americans if they had a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in the following institutions. And I'll give you the current numbers, and I'll also compare them to the 1970s when Gallup started collecting these data. So 37% said they had a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in the church and organized religion. It was almost 70% in the 1970s. 12% in Congress compared to 42% in the 1970s, 32% in the public school system, which was 62% in the 1970s, 36% in the Supreme Court, almost 50% in the 1970s, and 44% in the medical system, and it was 80% in the 1970s. Uh, Pew asked a different question, and they had an earlier comparison, 1950s, 1960s data, and they asked people if they trusted the federal government to do what was right most of the time. Only 20% of Americans said that they did, compared to 77% in the 1960s. So not a lot of trust out there among Americans for some key institutions in our society and some really big changes over time. And today we'll have two great experts on to help explain what has happened uh, 
what's happened in our country. Fantastic. And I'm so happy that we get the experts in this to explain it to us. And so we're very lucky to have Amy Freed and Doug Harris with us today. Yep. Stay tuned for that conversation coming up next. Amy Freed and Doug Harris, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us. I have to say, I love this book, and I get to ask the first question because my name begins with A. Uh, (laughs) So here's the first question. Which politician is the biggest perpetrator of weaponizing distrust, and why do you say Newt Gingrich? (laughs) (laughs) That's a loaded question. That's not how you write a survey question, Allie. (laughs) I told you I didn't take stats. Um, There are – you actually – you write about – you take a a macro view of uh, weaponizing distrust and the war on government. And um, to this end, you do talk about – the reasons for this war on government. And you talk about the the different benefits of this, which we'll get to in a second. But could you just give us like a little bit of a taste of who you both think are the biggest perpetrators of weaponizing distrust? Like, go ahead and name names. <laughs> we'll pretend that we're HUAC. I'd say of the people that we talk about in in the book as a whole i mean first of all there's a very long list of them <laughs> you know uh but i would point to newt gingrich as a primary individual just because of what he did to organize republicans to try to take over power using distrust and uh really the kind of rhetoric that that he taught Republican candidates to use, um, among other things. But I'd also, if we're going to do a top two, I'd probably say Donald Trump, because Trump has taken this weaponization of distrust into really new directions, much more extreme rhetoric, uh, much more overtly xenophobic rhetoric, and uh, going against government, certain parts of government that Republicans hadn't before with this deep state rhetoric, and really also trying to delegitimize elections. But, you know, there's a whole list of them. And, uh, you know, that that we could that we could name names. Yeah, I think I think Amy really put her finger on it, which is, uh, Ali, you are right that Newt Gingrich was the pioneer. He was uh, an early, unabashed critic of the system, and the conservative GOP members, uh, House members and senators at the time who looked at Gingrich, thought of Gingrich as doing some pretty scary stuff. I think that's a, that's a quote from Dan Coats at the time. Um, and, uh, but, but it really is, uh, Trump is the, the pinnacle of this, I hope. I hope uh, that that four years from now, I won't look back and say I was wrong that Trump was the pinnacle of this. But um, in, in, in prior incarnations of this strategy, uh, Republicans had exempted parts of the government that they favored, the, um, the, the, uh, the FBI, the military, uh, and, and, and the investigative 
investigatory branches of the government. And Trump would not only go after the, the, the government that provides health security to people, the government that provides redistributive benefits uh, to people throughout the country, but Trump would also go after his own Department of Justice. He would go after his own uh, uh, Pentagon uh, and that there were um, there were parts of this strategy that had been uh, in reserve that Republicans hadn't used against uh, against the um, the defense and the security state. And uh, Trump was going to uh, use this strategy because it was such a useful template um, to, to go after parts of government that Republicans had not gone after before. I think the easier ans- the easier question to answer is which Republicans didn't do this. Um, <laughs> if those are the top two, um, the the list is probably a little easier to 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 get after uh, if we think about it in terms of uh, who were the Republicans who stayed uh, faithful to the Constitution, who stayed uh, um, uh, uh, respectful of the institutions and realized that this was a republic that we all were a part of. Uh, and some of those names uh, ended up surprising me. Uh, but uh, but the, the list is short. I would say Mickey Edwards. I would say Bill Crystal. I would say David Frum. Uh, that, that these are uh, figures who had dabbled a bit in this anti-government rhetoric, but realized when too far was too far. But I would say really over time, like since, since this book covers such a long period of time, really in almost every period of time, there are establishment Republicans who are not that happy with some of the things that are going on. And they, they don't like the people who are really using this very florid kind of rhetoric. They're pushing back at it. I mean, before Reagan became, you know, Reagan, <laughs> he was part of a Goldwater group that was against the establishment Republicans. Gingrich certainly was against establishment Republicans. You had Tea Party people during the Obama years who, you know, a lot of the establishment didn't like very much. And some of them you know, some of those folks lost their seats and certainly in some of the Trump years. But what the dynamic that we're seeing with all of this is that you have this use of distrust strategically that's helpful in all these different ways for conservatives and Republicans. So in some ways, you know, various a lot of Republicans will engage in it more or less, um, but then it will also get people as part of the base, very hyped up and excited and maybe go further than they would like. And the very first paper that Doug and I wrote that started to develop this idea, we talked about this whole dynamic as as uh, like a bullfighter. And we use this epigraph from Hemingway, where Hemingway talked about taking a red cape and waving it around to get the bull excited and then the bull would charge, you know, sort of like invoking distrust and using distrust. But then sometimes what would happen to the matador is that he would get gored by the bull. And, you know, that's 
that's a that's a part of this dynamic as well. You know that that the excitement that uh, and the energy that the that Republican uh, constituencies have when being pushed and you know putting out these distrustful messages, but then it get and and so it's helpful for elected Republicans and groups and candidates and all that, but then it gets it goes like a little too far and they're like, Ooh, we don't really like the tea party, you know, painting, uh, you know, walking around with these pictures of Obama with an, with a bone through his nose. Is there any indication you called Newt Gingrich a pioneer? So, and, and this question is premised on my understanding of this being correct. So if it's not, you guys are the political scientists and you can certainly correct me. <clears throat> my understanding of, uh, conservatism has always been somewhat skeptical of government wanting limited government. So why Newt? Like, why does he all of a sudden become this flashpoint where it really takes off? And, and why is he the pioneer? Is there, is there something about that time period, something about him? You know, Newt Gingrich was viewed uh, early in his career as somebody who was uh, against government and against the establishment more generally. As a as a junior professor, uh, uh, the, the the presidency of his college opened up, and uh, as a junior pre tenure professor, Newt applied for the presidency. Uh, he was always somebody who who sort of discounted <laughs> institutional authority and uh, really thought that that he should take things over. Um, and he runs for Congress against uh, the the chair of the House Ethics Committee. So even in his pre-congressional career, his campaign was to be against the House as an institution. And uh, he carried that with him when he entered Congress and really did um, uh, rise by being anti-institutional. Uh, and I think that that and I think that his success from that um led Gingrich to uh, to see that this was an easy strategy that worked. And it was his way to sidestep Bob Michael, who was the House Republican leader at the time. It was his way to make a name for himself uh, pretty much by being bombastic. Uh, and the House as an institution, in some ways, the GOP as an institution was in his way, and he was going to take them over like he was going to be a, a junior college professor uh, who was going to be president when he was, I don't know, 30 years old. <laughs> I'm going to try that, Allie. I'm going to try that here. <laughs> please, please don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was unremittingly strategic. He was very, you know, focused in what he was trying to do. He definitely had a plan to try to take power. And a lot of it was to use this uh, just really hyperbolic rhetoric against Democrats and against Democratic in leaders, you know, and, and there was a whole set of words that he used in teaching uh, GOP candidates how to run, calling, calling uh, you know, Democrats corrupt and calling them evil and anti-family and, you know, a number of, uh, of other sorts of things like that. So, you know, and and he was he's also sort of fascinating in how quickly he shifts when he gets power. So you go from uh, Newt Gingrich, who says that uh, Congress has too much power, 
and is making these arguments as which other other people are doing at the same time from conservative circles, but you know, running against Congress, saying how corrupt they are, how bad they are, they have too much power under the Constitution. He goes from talking about the corruption of Congress, that's for sure. He goes from saying that Congress is extremely corrupt, but then when he becomes uh, Speaker of the House, he wants he wants Congress to have uh, more power. You know, so so really, depending on what, where he is in the in in the political system, you know, his institutional position, he shifts, and that's one of the kind of strategic uses of distrust that we talk about is trying to take power away from institutions that you don't control, make kind of push distrust towards those, and then toward bring the power towards institutions you you do control, and. You know, another way we see that, not just with Gingrich, but over time, where there's certain points where Republicans think that the presidency should have a lot of power. And then when there's a Democratic president, then you don't want the president to have power. Um, and, you know, that certainly happened between, say, Obama and Trump, like big time. I'd like to follow up on that point uh, about Gingrich because I actually have a personal anecdote there. Um, I had read uh, in in the late 80s where Gingrich had written the foreword to a book called The Imperial Congress. And The Imperial Congress was this uh, conservative book that looked at how Congress was overstepping its power. They, they get Newt Gingrich to write the foreword. And uh, when I was in graduate school, I attended an event at the Library of Congress where the new speaker, Newt Gingrich, was giving a talk. And his talk at that uh, Library of Congress event was a complete reversal of what he had been, uh, what he had said in that uh, forward to the Imperial Congress. And instead, he was saying, as Amy uh, alluded, um, he was saying that uh, what the framers really wanted was that the prime the speaker would be something like a prime minister, uh, and that the speaker had all of this power. Now, when the speaker was Tip O'Neill or the speaker was Jim Wright, uh, Newt Gingrich wasn't saying those things. But when the speaker was Newt Gingrich, Newt Gingrich um, hmm. believed that the speaker was the center of the universe. And 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 this is this is really an important point because. Um, I'm something of, 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 of a naivete, right? I am a true believer. I, I take uh, uh, conservatives and liberals at their word. I believed growing up in, 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 uh, in Maryland, and I believed when I, when, I, when I went off to college that conservatives believed that the Constitution was fixed. But if you read the Republican platforms in regard to the separation of powers, conservatives do not believe the Constitution is fixed. It is very flexible, and they are doing somersaults when they take over the House or the presidency um, in regard to which institution should be more powerful. And this is a term that you refer to in the book as situational constitutionalism, which I really thought was just a terrific way of saying, you know, where you stand depends on where you sit, and you are willing to interpret the Constitution differently, depending on which levers of power are in your hand at what time. 
And it just, I mean, it reminds me of that story about Elizabeth Taylor being interviewed by somebody who said, oh, your ring is so gaudy. And she said, oh, you should try it on. And the interviewer did and looked at it and said, oh, you know, huh. And she said, it's much more beautiful when you're wearing it, isn't it? Um, <laughs> you know, and, and it's just that when you're, when you're wearing the ring of power, it really is much more, it is much more attractive. Well, Allie, do you remember when we had, we had Charlie Sykes on the show and he had the same exact reaction as Doug had? The same reaction as I had, which is, and maybe we're all naive, but I always thought growing up, you know, as a kid of the 90s and the 80s, like that, you know, it was about, you know, low taxes, small government. And I was legitimately shocked, as was Sykes. And it sounds like Doug was as well, when all of that stuff either went silent or folks who were oppositional to those ideas now rose to power, you know, in any given election. It really, I mean, I was quite shocked. Maybe I'm just naive. I think the same is true of deficit politics. Spending good, spending bad. Deficits don't matter. Deficits matter, right? Right. And, you know, and as I said, with presidential power, so when Obama is president, there's all of this criticism from the right that he's too powerful. There's signing statements. He's appointing czars who are really just, you know, people taking on particular projects for a period of time. Um, and the platforms are full of all of this language. The Republican Party platforms are, are full of lots of language criticizing overweening presidential power. Then Trump comes in and, uh, you know, all of that completely goes out the window. And Bill Barr, who he has as attorney general for a very important period of time, is someone who had written, you know, wrote this memo the summer before he's appointed attorney general saying that basically you you can't um, even investigate the president for crimes that uh, he's he's he is the law he is you know he, he, as the as the person who is the ha- chief executive uh, so it, and 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 then oddly enough the Repu- the republicans don't even do a platform a party platform in 2020 because they don't have a in-person convention, I suppose. So they reissue their old platform from 2016 and paste on top of it, in a sense, um, a little, you know, memo that says our platform, besides what we've attached here, is that Trump is the head of the Republican Party and we support him. And anybody who criticizes him is bad. And that, and that sounds a little overstated, but it, it's really very close to it. You know, that, it, you know, the fake news media will go out and attack him. So, you know, they're, they're putting Trump completely central to what it means to be a Republican. They've supported really very strong presidential powers under the Trump administration while attaching a platform, an old platform that's attacking Obama for supposedly being, you know, power hungry. It's it's just the oddest thing. You know, I consider myself really lucky in terms of the students that I get to teach. I have students who are who are very liberal. I have students who are very conservative and I have students who have gone on to work on Capitol Hill in uh, for Republican speakers and Democratic speakers and throughout uh, throughout uh, both chambers and, and, and the last couple of administrations. What I always try to impress upon my students is I don't really care particularly uh, which side you take 
on constitutional questions, because these are legitimate debates that people can have. But uh, I would like you, if you want to be a citizen and a person of integrity, (laughs) I would like you to have a position on the Constitution that lasts for more than two or four years at a time. That's called having a principle. Okay, so this is uh, from your book. So you write that there are uh, four primary benefits of distrust for conservative politicians. So could you just, for the uninitiated reader who we're hoping is going to run out to virtual the virtual store of Amazon and order your book after hearing this interview, but uh, for those that haven't read it yet, could you go through uh, the four primary benefits, organizational, electoral, institutional, and policy, and just explain your argument? Sure. Uh, well, what we're arguing is that there's these different ways that conservatives uh, in the United States over these last decades have used distrust strategically. And they've used it organizationally to try to build and maintain organizations, whether that's political parties or other conservative movement organizations, as a kind of central organizing principle, as a glue to hold them together. They've used them in elections to make uh, campaign kinds of uh, appeals, whether uh, to, you know, talking about their opponents or, you know, talking about the government in general, talking about what what they're going to stand for. They've used them institutionally, so trying to shift power to the institutions they control and away from the ones that they don't. Um, and they they also use them in policy battles. So really trying to harness messages of distrust in making policy arguments. And we talk about a number of different policies here and there through the book, but one constant is health policy, mm-hmm. which we uh, cover over time from when Harry Truman first proposed some kind of uh, universal health care or you know big expansion of coverage through much more recent years. And, uh, you know, with uh, really a lot of attention to what was going on when Bill Clinton tried to achieve health reform, and then when um, um, Obama succeeded in passing health reform, uh, where where there was a lot of use of, of distrust in government. You know, when it comes to the organizational benefits, um, one of the things that we see repeatedly is that um, Republicans realize that their stances on social issues uh, are potentially divisive inside the coalition, but are really um, uh, repelling to uh, independent voters that they, they try to win over. So even as they court those social issues, when it came to something like the contract with America, they wanted to keep the guns and the abortion out of the contract and really focus in on this critique of government. They realized that not only is that the glue that holds the coalition together, but it's also something of a magnet that can bring in independence that they might need to uh, build the, the, a plurality that could win or, or maybe a majority that could win. When it comes to the electoral benefits, um, the thing that I've been most interested in is the primarying strategy that uh, conservatives use against other Republicans. This 
levying of this term rhino, right, Republican in name only, is um, really remarkable to those of us who understand the history of the GOP because somebody who was called a rhino like, uh, like Dick Luger from Indiana was considered a conservative was considered when he ran for Republican leader in 1984, too conservative. <laughs> so they picked Bob Dole instead. Uh, and, and, and then Dick Luger, because he cared about the political system, because he cared about governance and he wanted to get things actually done, he was seen as uh, a target for uh, Republicans who, uh, who were just as, as willing to blow up the system uh, and, and, and run against him from the right. And there are a number of these stories where people who had once been considered very conservative, like Paul Ryan, um, or, or like, like, uh, Cantor from Virginia are then, uh, primaried from the right, uh, because they are in some ways viewed as complicit with the system. But what we have to understand is the system they're complicit with is our American political system. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's, it's a system that, that actually uh, requires cooperation and some respect for the other side. Um, and, you know, when it comes to the institutional benefits, um, the, the really remarkable thing is this vacillation which is, uh, I am going to celebrate presidential power if my party controls the presidency. I am going to call the president uh, a, a dangerous authority, authoritarian if the president happens to be a Democrat. Uh, and in the case of Barack Obama, we do, have to, we do have to admit that some of that dangerousness was, was, was viewed through a racial lens. And uh, the, the, the fear of Obama was 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 talked about as um, perhaps as Newt Gingrich said and was echoed by some other Republicans he had a post-colonial mindset um, that that really what they were trying to do was saying that any presidential power that Barack Obama was uh, was, was was exercising um, and, and and I should remind you this is this is the presidency that Ronald Reagan and Ed Meese built. Uh, a very robust, powerful presidency. Um, any power that Barack Obama was 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 exercising in that new strong presidency format was somehow seen as the other, seen as dangerous. Um, and and I just wanted to 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 bring up that too. Um, and then the policy benefits. Let's have policy debates. Let's not have debates that basically say um, that that. Uh, that a health system is going to lead to death panels. Uh, that um, you know that uh, that the real the real fear here here is is bureaucracy itself. Because um, what that indicates is is a failure of the political system more than it is uh, a questioning of a of a legitimate policy debate. In a lot of the readings that I've been doing lately, folks have been making the interesting observation that we've we've moved from being a country where we had these patriotic leanings, where we would call ourselves, you know, Americans. And then we kind of shifted to saying that we were, you know, we were Michiganders first or Pennsylvanians first. Um, and now we're so polarized that we tend to identify 
with our parties first. And when, as I was reading your book, I was realizing that, that people are, are running for office on the platform of like, I'm not from Washington. I'm not a Washington person. And so the first identity that they have is that they are opposing DC first. That's like the first thing that you know about somebody. And this kind of ties in with this forthcoming paper that I read by Enders and Usinski, um, and uh, Joe Usinski, who does a lot of work on conspiracy theories. And you guys touch on conspiracies in your book as well. Um, and all of this sort of, it got me thinking as, as uh, Enders and Usinski wrote that an amalgamation of, of sort of the strongest Trump supporter was not just that they were conspiracy minded or they had um, animosity towards specific groups, but it was a combination of all of these things. And they found this by asking specific questions. And the four questions that they asked about conspiracy thinking were these questions. Um, question one, uh, much of our lives are being controlled by plots hatched in secret places. Number two, even though we live in a democracy, a few people will always run things anyway. Number three, the people who really run the country are not known to the voters. And number four, big events like wars, the current recession and the outcomes of elections are controlled by small groups of people who are working in secret against the rest of us. And that was supposed to get to conspiracy thinking. But really, all of those questions are about government. Right. I mean, they're about who is running the country. Um, and so it feels to me that at one hand, as people are running against, you know, on just like a, a mainstream, like, you know, I'm the outsider. I'm running against Washington. Elect me because I'm, you know, that kind of thing. Um, you're also tapping into this like kind of shadowy, like, because we don't know what's going on in there. Um, and that spreads this distrust out to a group of folks who really see not just don't trust the government, but like they're doing terrible things to us. And I was hoping that both of you could speak to the effect that that is going to have, because I feel like that that escalates things like that, that escalates things into a, a far more pernicious and, and scary place for me, at least, um, that it made me fearful. So I think that those questions, Allie, that you just put forward as, uh, as, as this battery of questions to sort of gauge people's views of the political system, those are questions that could have been asked of anti-Masons uh, in the early 19th century. These are questions that could have been asked of uh, John Birch Society and the people who were worried about fluoridation in water. Um, and I think that this does tap into Hofstetter's idea that there is this paranoid style in American politics. There is this fundamental suspicion historically that people distant from us are making decisions that impact us. Where this has become just so dangerous is when it comes to... Um, uh, a, a global pandemic and uh, people being afraid uh, of um, of their FDA, of their CDC at a time when they need those parts of government most. And it um, this is an 
ideology and this is a disposition and this is a practice of politics which may be good at winning elections but it's really bad for the country and frankly it's killing people i would also agree that there's a long history of distrust in government and there's also a a very respectable version you could say of that you know there's a there's a whole set of arguments going back to the founding about the need to balance different centers of power. You know, we both have checks and balances within the federal government, but then we also have federalism where you have powers to the states. And lots of people were making these arguments, both people who wanted to, uh, you know, uh, ratify the Constitution, those who opposed it. So we've always had some distrust of central authority and central power in the United States. and And all of that is can be extremely reasonable, uh, can be part of a kind of principled conservatism, um, you know, that and, and the, and, you know, the idea from Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis that states are the laboratories of democracy, you know, you try out different policies there. But really, what is going on is closer to the kind of frank conspiratorial ideas, whether it was, you know, anti-Masons or John Birch Society or or whatever, um, the kind of questions that, that you were talking about, Ali, are sound like QAnon identifying questions, you know, people who believe in that view, um, where, which, you know, Trump was associated with. And, and really, you look at even his 2016 rhetoric about globalists and the deep state were kind of, you know, steps along that, the, the way towards that kind of vision of things. Um, and indeed, it does make a difference. You can't easily address collective problems, problems that involve the public as a whole, if you don't use this tool called the government. Now, we don't think, you know, only government solves problems or is creative. We, you know, we have very vibrant public sec- uh, public sector, but it's also important private sector in, in this country as well. But there are things that the private sector is not going to do on its own. And, you know, whether that's building roads or uh, education for everyone, defense system or public health. And uh, it, it's very sad to see a situation where so many people are unvaccinated, and and it's and the COVID pandemic has always been a pandemic of the unvaccinated, right? That's that's who gets that's who gets it. That's who gets very sick. That's who dies uh, overall, you know, overwhelmingly. But we're seeing that so much more clearly now when you have these differences by people who are vaccinated and who are unvaccinated. When it first came out, everyone was unvaccinated, you know, and the pandemic started. But now, you know, you literally see people who have been, who are activists against vaccines because they have these fears about the, the deep state and, you know, all, all of that, um, who, who are, who are in hospitals who are, uh, then, you know, sometimes realizing when it's too late that, that they shouldn't have felt that way. And some are, are dying still believing that it's a hope that there must be something else. 
Um, and that's obviously not just damaging to them and to their families, but it really hurts all of us, you know, our ability to, to live our lives and to, to have a vibrant economy, to have a vibrant life, you know, get back to our normal lives. We can't do that very easily when you have this ongoing pandemic. On September 9th, there was this great story in Politico uh, about Larry Elder, who's a radio host. And um, this article was written by a journalist named Erin Aubrey Kaplan. And she wrote that in 1997, she was a staff writer for the LA Weekly, where she had written a cover story called The Butt, which was an essay about black female physicality. And it was intended to be humorous, but it was also a serious exploration of Kaplan's own struggles with her weight and her body image and the psychology of race and racism. And on Larry Elder's radio show, he had, he was a conservative radio host. He complained about the story and ridiculed the subject matter and the author as incomprehensible. Well, eventually Kaplan goes on the show to talk to Elder about this story and off the air during the commercial breaks, Larry Elder told her casually that he had understood her story just fine and all of its main points. But he said, if you and I agreed, there'd be no show. We wouldn't have this. And he gestured to the lit up phone lines with a kind of glee. And, you know, I wonder, some really misleading political rhetoric isn't all that damaging. But the kind of political rhetoric that undermines public health, that undermines our democracy, that's, of course, extremely damaging. And I was wondering if either of you are ever shocked at the politicians and the the conservative media personalities who say these things which undermine public health, which undermine our democracy, and know what they're doing and, and just don't care. Yeah, I, I, I am shocked. Um, in, in point of fact, uh, I know some some of the people who uh, are are tweeting out some of these stories, uh, I they they are my friends. They have been my friends, uh, and it's um, it's disturbing. Uh, and you know, I understand that there has been a commitment to regular order. I understand that there has been a commitment in the past to trying to trying to build up the institutions. Uh, and I took them at their word that this was uh, as important to them as it was to uh, me, uh, as it was to uh, the people who, who established this country and, and kept it together. Um, and I, I am really I am really shocked uh, the, that I hadn't seen that elder story that you you just spoke of. But it, it does remind me of what I kind of think of as the perfect the professional wrestlingization of our politics, uh, which is um, it's 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 a script. It's given to bombast. It's there as a spectacle. That spectacle that is established in professional wrestling is designed to excite an audience. It's designed to attract an audience. The most important thing for democratic theory here is that they are taking citizens and making them a passive audience to a show instead of active participants in their own governance. And that's what really disturbs me about this because I thought we were all in this together. I'd also add that, um, 
you know, you can think of this kind of question, you can reframe it as, um, well, doesn't, you know, isn't this something everyone does? You know, isn't this garden variety political hypocrisy? And there is certainly political hypocrisy that you can see from many different quarters. You know, I would say ideologically, it's, you know, there's, there is always going to be, there are always going to be cases of political hypocrisy. But this is actually something really beyond that, that this um, tendency just to try to rile people up in this way goes against a very important kind of quality that you do want from citizens, a kind of civic virtue that's sometimes been called democratic forbearance, which is you don't always jump into something in the most extreme way that you possibly could. You hold yourself back, which is something that, hope, you know, hopefully people do also in their private lives. You know, like if my husband says something that kind of annoys me, I get along with him better if internally I roll my eyes and don't always say something. Divorce. (laughs) Well, speak up when you have to, right? But sometimes keep your mouth shut and just deal, you know? And so instead of saying, hold back a little bit, it's it's, let's go further and further and further and Mm -hmm. push people down this kind of road. And someone who actually we I don't think we ever do mention in the book that comes to my, but who's, who comes to my mind right now is um, uh, William Bennett, who I, I think he was Secretary of Education under Reagan. I might be wrong. He was. That. Yeah. yeah. Oh, thanks. Thanks. And he had this whole set of books and things that he put out, he, mm-hmm. you know, the book of the book virtues. of virtues. And, you know, this is what should, we should be teaching children or children about what are important virtues and, you know, understand our history and these kinds of civic virtues that we should have and, you know, let everyone speak and respect each other and all that sort of thing. And he really had absolutely nothing to say about Trump when Trump just showed a complete disregard for democratic norms, not only in actions, but in words, you know, both. And he said, Nothing like all the commitment to to virtues, whether private virtues or civic virtues, went completely out the window. Um, and you know, yeah, some of these other folks like Charlie Sykes or the Bulwark, all the people in the Bulwark, number of other people weren't willing to do that in recent years. They said, "This is not who we are." Um, and I think you know, retraining those kinds of virtues, if we could. Would be a good thing. Now, ultimately, that that seems like a hard thing to do. <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't know what what you see in your with your students, but I find like, you know, we have very active college Republicans and college Democrats at my university, and they can talk to each other very well at the university, That's and good. they do show respect to each other. Yeah, but. What happens when they graduate? Sometimes they get, just get so pulled into, you know, their partisan bubbles that 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 stops. And it's it's not true with everyone either. My on campus good example or my off campus bad example, but it does. There is such a strong pull of that dynamic out in the out in the general public that that it just really it has a very strong you know it just really has a, a big weight behind it. I'll add, uh, I think that part of this is showing the weakness of uh, contemporary America and contemporary American Republican government, Uh, not big R Republican, but us being a republic. 
And what we really need to do is we need to build those muscles back. And those are muscles of reason. Those are muscles of, and I know that this is going to be controversial on all, all spectrums. Those are muscles of morality. Um, the muscle of forbearance, the muscle of, of tolerance, and, and, and the muscles where we as citizens try to embrace um, one another and one another's differences uh, because that's the only thing that has ever really made this country great. And when we are able to put those things, uh, those differences aside or figure out that there is something um, something uh, more common to us than that which divides us. That's what wins World War II. That's what rebuilds a country after a civil war. These are uh, these are the things that um, that we need to get better at. And it really is, I think, building a civic capacity, um, and and it includes smarts intelligence, but it also includes morality and, and, and tolerance or forbearance, as Amy said. And that leads me to my next question, which is, you know, really about um, how, how divided we are and, um, and how we're living in, in these Two separate worlds, um, because you you wrote about the war on previously excused parts of the government, like the FBI and the intel communities, you know, turning them into a deep state and um, and such. And you know, all of that sort of reminds me of the war on trust against the mainstream media, uh, the accusations of fake news, the discrediting of the vehicles of information and sources of fact. And, you know, I wonder what happens when there there is no common sets of fact, right? And we're seeing it right now happen in real time with the January 6th commission, where uh, recently Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader in the House, announced that he's setting up his own commission to find his own truth and his own you know, sets of facts with his own people, um, you know, and it's his own sort of war on government that he is in charge of. Uh, so I just wonder, like, wh- what happens now? Because I, your your points are well taken that, yes, we need to we need to come pull ourselves back together. Um, and yet the elites uh, there's so much money and power and votes to be gained by keeping us apart. Um, so how do we either, how do we fix it or what are you seeing that um, is either encouraging or discouraging? Well, Allie, I'll take this opportunity to announce that I'm establishing my own commission to study the events of January 6th and Kevin <laughs> McCarthy and that I have uh, my <laughs> as much authority to do so as does the minority leader of the House of Representatives who does not control this institution. Um, and, um, and, and basically this is, this is a show and, uh, he's, he's trying to, he's, he's, he's trying to institute that kind of, um, 
institution damaging uh, um, uh, uh, alternative system uh, instead of participating in the institution that actually has a responsibility and the institution that was actually attacked on that day. And it is uh, remarkable to me that the minority leader of the House of Representatives, an office that was once occupied by somebody like Bob Michael or Gerald Ford, would do something like that. Um, so how do how do we how do we the get show is going to get great ratings on Fox? <laughs> how do how do we get past it? Uh, I think we get past it um, by uh, demanding more of our leaders. That a lot of this goes back to this idea of civic capacity, demanding better leaders. Uh, I believe that there are better leaders and people that I disagree with uh, in in the Republican Party. Um, and that there is a lot of courage and that part of what we need to do is that we need to recognize that courage, put the show aside and, and, and start focusing on the real problems that are confronting the country because these are common problems. This virus does not know uh, uh, Democrat and Republican. Um, the, the vaccine seems to right now. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and in terms of uh, the receptivity of different people to it, but uh, ultimately that's that's going to be looked looked upon in retrospect as a huge mistake for a lot of people, and it's 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 horribly sad to see. Uh, I think um, we need to find a way to get uh, to understand that that party politics is a good thing. Uh, party politics uh, and, and partisan differences can help structure our debates, uh, but that all requires uh, a common set of institutions, a common uh, set of, of facts, um, and um, we need to rebuild some of that, some of that collective capacity. And what, what we talk about a little in the book, which is lateral trust. It's not just trust in the government, it's trust in one another, and we need to rebuild that. Amy, I'll let you weigh in in a second, but uh, Allie and I, I think Allie agrees with me, but she she may not. Allie, you pipe up and tell me if you, I, we've had this discussion several times, and I think you do, but when I'm at the gym here in Shippensburg and I'm watching the TVs, it's almost comical the way they put them on sometimes because they will give me the side-by-side -side of like NBC giving me the straight news and there'll be some hearing or, or some event like the Chauvin trial was on, right? And so I'll see the straight news. And then I'll see how MSNBC is covering it. And then I'll see how Fox is covering it. Uh, and I just, I want to push back a little bit, Doug, and you're the expert. So you tell me, no, Lawrence, you're wrong. And here are all the reasons why one through a hundred. Uh, but I don't see how that's possible when the disincentives are so strong to keep this thing going the way that it's going. There's a fire hose. I mean, I can see it when I'm watching the TVs, a fire hose of either one of three things, Partisan information, so so limited, partial, uh, excluding some things while while by uh, giving primacy to others, misinformation and disinformation. Without shutting off that fire hose, how are you going to put people in the right mindset to demand the leaders that you're asking them to demand? I think you have a a, a really good point there. Um, for me, it's always I'm a uh, I'd rather light a candle than curse the darkness uh, kind of guy, uh, and um, I I I realize that uh, this is a steady torrent of um, of 
information and misinformation and certainly partisan uh, um, partisan takes that uh, are poisoning our ability to come together. But um, I'm not sure what other choice I really have except to say, look, there are some basics that we can go back to. There are some basics that we, we all yeah. were taught uh, uh, that, that, that the Constitution matters, that being a person of integrity matters, that that, that, kind, of, that kind of morality um, uh, matters. Uh, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be uh, a, a long, long time. But my experience is a lot like Amy's with my students. My students talk to one another. Uh, and I think that there is something generational yeah. here that, um, that maybe this is uh, the worst bad moment uh, and uh, that we'll grow our way, that we'll grow our way out of it. And I think it, it, it's up to a lot of us who teach uh, American government and politics um, to, to really try to uh, demonstrate that forbearance, demonstrate that tolerance and uh, uh, help students build their own civic capacity. I'm not sure it's going to have the broad reach. I know it won't have the broad reach that Fox News has or that MSNBC or CNN has. Um, but uh, I'd rather take the step forward if I can. Yeah, it's a good question. And, and certainly, you know, what the media does matters and people put themselves into certain media bubbles and get attracted into their media bubbles which, by the way, have changed to some extent even recently with conservatives, some conservatives giving up Fox, seeing it as too wussy and moving towards (laughs) Newsmax and OAN and the like. But I think there are a lot of things that can happen outside of the, you know, just the relationship of here's a person sitting at home or wherever they're sitting at the gym or whatever. And here's the, and here's the media that that's, that's part of life that could matter. And I'm, I'm really proud of our, chapter seven, our last chapter, which is our sort of what is to be done chapter, because we tried to draw from lots of different evidence-based possibilities, you know, things that that have been done, uh, you know, maybe not thinking it would apply exactly to our problem, but in in certain ways will. And I'll there's a lot there, but I'll 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 mention just a couple um, and and something, a few different ones than what Doug brought up. And um, one of them is when you when campaigning takes place, political campaigns take place, really connecting with people much more personally. Um, I saw that very upfront in a campaign that was in Maine for marriage equality. There was a referendum to allow for, you know, gay and lesbian couples to get married that operated for more than a year with people going door to door, talking to people, saying, uh, things like, well, my one of my best friends is a gay man, and why shouldn't he be able to get married? You know, and uh, talking, getting people to talk about people they knew in their lives who who were uh, gay, lesbian people, um, and and that did make a difference in shifting people over towards supporting marriage equality. It also did include some ads, uh, like there was a very famous one for, you know, in these circles of a grandfather talking about how he would like his his granddaughter to be able to marry the woman that she loves. Um, you know, so this kind of like really personal connection that that cuts beyond some of 
that, you know, the, the way of defining others as enemies. I think that can make a difference. And there's there's increasing research coming out about that from uh, Brookman and, and Kala and others um, about how, how you can change people's minds in an actually adorable way. Um, and to do that, having these ongoing places in people's lives and politics, not just showing up on campaign times, but being around more, building state and local parties. There's a great book by political scientist Etan Hirsch called Politics is About Power that that says we're trained to see politics as a hobby now. This, you know, let's turn on the TV and get get our get the excitement of being mad about something. But we can see it as problem solving and having the power to do things. And, you know, that involves more ongoing relationships with people. So getting away from that. I'd also mention on, you know, there's a lot of other things we have in there, but just in when it comes to when you uh, when policies are passed, trying to structure them in a way that people can see them more easily and, and, and see the impact that they have and make it easier for people to access. There's a public administration term, uh, administrative burdens, like what do you have to do to actually get a hold of this help, (laughs) you know, and, you know, make it easier for people to get a hold of it, make it more obvious where it's coming from. Um, You know, like in in the Obama years, when they did some uh, tax cut or, you know, to as part of a stimulus, they just did it by reducing the amount of withholding that people had in their checks, which is actually very good if you want people to go out and spend the money. It has good policy implications, but people didn't realize it was happening. You have to like do things that make it more obvious that you're getting the help and that it's more accessible and talk about it as something that you're doing to help the community and to help particular families, you know, live, live well. Uh, so I think there's there's there are a number of different tools and some of it's going to involve civic education and people speaking up. But there are other things that can be done involving those four areas that's been used for promoting distrust, but then use them to promote trust with our elections, with our organizations, with our institutions and with our policies. Was that was that Suzanne Mettler's argument? Was it the submerged state that? Yeah. Exactly. You have to unsubmerge the state, Yeah, you know, and make and make things way easier. Like, look, I, and there have been changes. Um, I don't know. My kids are out of college now. They both graduated. Yay, yay. Uh, but um, Congratulations. <laughs> uh, right. But like when we had to fill out the FAFSA, I mean, that is such a pain. And my understanding is that has actually gotten to be a little bit easier. It's like if you make administrative burdens less, it both annoys people a whole lot less. <laughs> and, you know, makes it more makes it more accessible. I'll, I'll add, um, I think that that last point that Amy raised is uh, a really important one, which is, um, we are trained, I think, culturally and historically to talk about government failure. I used to say this in class a lot, which is no one walks outside, sees an airplane flying above them and says, hey, way to go, FAA. Um, No, when do we hear from the FAA? We hear from the FAA when something bad has happened. Uh, But what we don't understand is that most of most of air travel is safe, not because of 
market forces alone, but because of government. And this is the kind of thing that we need to do. People need to unsubmerge the state. Uh, we need to talk. We need to have a sophisticated conversation about what the government is good at and what it's not good at, rather than just government good versus government bad. Let's talk about the things that are done well. Let's talk about the things that are done not as well. But I think that, you know, when, um, when uh, the administration just recently was trying to get people out of Afghanistan, the press was all over it because it looked like a mess at the beginning. And that's a story that the press can tell. This is a mess. I see a mess. I see administrative failure. Uh, and uh, what, what we didn't see as much of was, oh, they actually got that many people out. Uh, and they got them out uh, relatively uh, quickly and relatively efficiently. We don't see a lot of stories about the efficiency of government and when government actually works. And I think in the end, we'll look back at that and we'll tell a very complicated story. Some really good historian or political scientist or sociologist is going to tell a really interesting story about um, the United States... <laughs> the United States uh, uh, exit from Afghanistan. And it's going to be complicated. It's going to be messy. It's going to be heroic. It's going to be administratively flawed and administratively inspiring. And that's what reality is. And for some reason, our politics doesn't really address reality these days. Because that's not what our news reflects. And our news has never reflected that. You know, it's the... Um, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. And, and so, you know, kind of looping around to the primary argument of your book, it, it, it leads on the news that, you know, government is not the solution, government is the problem. And therefore, those stories are going to come first. And when that becomes part and parcel of the ideological framework of if not an entire political party, certainly of a lot of the party leaders, then, you know, as a lot of work that's been done lately on identity theory and, you know, what all of this says, you know, that leads to, I think, a very large point of what your book is, is saying, which is that it's not what does this policy do for me? It's what does this stand say about me? And so even though government policies would be good for me, having an anti-government policy says so much about me, I care more about that than I do about the policy that actually would be good for me. And it's that identity of being anti-government, that identity of being at war with government that seems to dominate now. Um, particularly among conservatives. And so those stories are not going to be told, particularly among right-wing media. And therefore, the 32% of the American public that gets their news from right-wing media won't hear the good news stories because it doesn't fit in with the narrative. And those stories really aren't told to begin with. You know, I mean, if, if we had a, a news, there may even be a cable station that is dedicated solely to the number of planes that land safely every day, because there's just so much airspace out there now that we could possibly have that. But finding, you know, good news stories these days is, um, it's hard 
You know, it's hard because there's just so much bad news. And by that, I mean, there's news that's just poor quality news. But there's also just a lot of news that's that's sad and makes you angry and all the emotive stuff sells. Let's and the that's, four of us. Let's the four of us walk outside right now and clap for things going the way they're supposed to go and see how quickly the authorities are called on us. <laughs> yeah. Start clapping for the airplanes. <laughs> yeah. Like, way to go. A bus showed up at the bus stop. You know, I mean... <laughs> Okay, but let me, let me maybe not exactly challenge it, but at least give you a little counterpoint, which is that when it did look like the pandemic was under control, like, you know, when, when uh, you know, uh, Joe Biden came in and he got the vaccine distribution up and things started working more effectively and, more, you know, all of that, and case numbers were going down and deaths went down. His approval ratings were higher than they are right now with Delta surging back. Now, you know, one could argue, as I would, that, you know, that's not really his fault. It's the fault of the, and I think most of the public thinks it's the fault of the people who decide not to get vaccinated, you know, that, that it's coming back. But there was some responsiveness to good news, right? There was some, you know, things are working pretty well. So I think people... Even if we are in so much more of a polarized period where neg- there's so much negative partisanship and it's a part of our identity, there are enough people out there that will respond to, to something that is, uh, that they can see in their lives. I mean, Afghanistan's a harder one because, you know, like we're not walking around Kabul. <laughs> we're not seeing what's happening. We don't, we don't have even have good ways, the average person of judging how well you know, the, the withdrawal is going and, you know, even though it, you know, they got a, whatever it was, 125,000 people out, which was pretty amazing, but most of us don't have the context to judge that, but on things that are much closer to our lives, we do. And, and there were, there were reactions to that. I mean, people uh, did when they saw that the pandemic was more under control, it was, it was a net positive for the president who, who was the leader in that case. No, I, I agree. I absolutely agree with you. Um, and every time my garbage is picked up, you know, internally I clap um, <laughs> because I feel like I won something, you know, and the, and the mail is delivered and, you know, everything. It just, because I feel very lucky that we live in a country where we have these government functions that work because we could live in a country where it doesn't work at all. So hooray. Sure. Um, and, you know, I'd also say we have such individualism in this country. So people uh, want to believe everything they got, they got on their own. Right. Right. Uh, you know, they worked hard and they went out there and they got it. And I think of my mom who wouldn't have gone to college if at the time you know, that she went, she went to Queens College in New York City, and it was tuition free, because, you know, that's what they did in those days. I'm sure Mm -hmm. she couldn't have done it otherwise, or all, you know, so um, you, you, uh, but she, she recognized that, you know, (laughs) my mom, my mom did recognize that. But you see people all the time who think, yeah, of course, we people have to work hard to have accomplishments. And we want we want our kids to work hard and, and do good work and, you know, have accomplishments. But, but they're living in a in a world that's just that's beyond who they are. And, you know, that's I mean, we don't really, we don't talk about that so, so much, but American individualism, 
and the lack of any real sense of history, those are really, really pretty important parts of our culture and our political culture. Yeah, this makes me think of uh, the comedian and uh, Allie may know the comedian. I wish I could remember who said it, but uh, talking about the post office, they said, here, I've got this letter. I need you to take it to Alaska and here's 58 cents for your trouble. (laughs) Um, You know, the government does some pretty remarkable things. And, uh, you know, we should be we should be proud. That's that's patriotism to me. Uh, We should be proud of the things that we're able to do uh, here in this country. And we do them together when we work together. So um, I know that you guys have to go. So can I give the um, the Brian Lamb book notes since it is no longer on the air? Can I give the Brian Lamb exit? Please go for it. I'm so I always am so excited to do this. The book is at war with government, how conservatives weaponize distrust from Goldwater to Trump. Amy Freed, Doug Harris, thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks for a great conversation. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Utterly Moderate Podcast. Before we go, we want to remind you to visit our website, utterlymoderatenetwork.com. There you can find all of our podcast episodes and their companion resources, our guide to reliable news outlets, the contact page where you can suggest topics for future shows, and more. That's UtterlyModerateNetwork.com. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us on our next episode. And until then, we'll play you out with friends of the show, the Riders in the Sky. Happy trails to you until we meet. Again, happy trails to you. Keep smiling until then. Who cares about the clouds when we're together? Just sing a song and bring the sunny weather. Happy trails to you till we meet again. Trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails to you. Keep smiling until then. Who cares about the clouds when we're together? Just sing the song and bring the sunny weather. Happy trails to you. Goodbye, good luck, and may the good Lord take a liking to you.